In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Julie Castro-Abrams is our guest this week on Money Tales. Julie is a hard-charging activist who very early on knew what she did not want to be, and that was to be a trophy wife. This is because when she was young, Julie saw her mother's friends navigating divorces and ending up destitute as a result. Julie wanted to have a family and a career. She also wanted to protect herself from the financial risks that her mom's friends experienced. Julie successfully crafted the life she wanted, including finding a spouse who had strong enough ego to be an ally and support her role as the family's breadwinner. Today, Julie is the founder and managing partner of How Women Invest, an early stage venture firm focused on high growth, tech-enabled women-founded enterprises. The firm is a culmination of Julie's lifetime of work, propelling women founders to launch their businesses and find success with training, capital, and networks. Julie is also the founder and CEO of How Women Lead, where she is advising the SBA, the White House, and Congress on national legislative initiatives to address economic opportunities for women. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Julie hits on in this conversation. First, what it's like to be in a position today where she is making money and giving money away using her robust network of women leaders to change structures that have historically impeded women. Second, how despite your efforts to quote unquote, do everything right in your financial life, things can happen in the economy and the stock market that are outside of your control and can throw you off track. Julie experienced this during the financial crisis and felt shame as a result. She now looks back at the time period with compassion. And third, how in Julie's experience, women have earned less than men not because they haven't asked for more, which is often the stated reason. Instead, Julie believes women are compensated for what they've already accomplished rather than their potential. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Julie Castro Abrams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I am Cami Doder. And I am Sandy Breaker. Cami, I am excited about our conversation today in anticipation of talking with our guests. I wanted to share a story about a client that I work with and her experience joining the board of a public company earlier this year. This client otherwise works as a corporate executive in a publicly traded company and joining the board of this other publicly traded company provided the opportunity to do some really interesting planning. As some of our listeners may know, board income is considered self-employment income to the board member. 
that provides an opportunity to make additional retirement plan contributions. In her particular situation, she will have the opportunity to have some stock purchases in the future. There's some requirements for the board there. There's trading windows that need to be observed when stock is purchased and sold. And there's a deferred compensation plan available. So this client can choose to defer some of this earnings that she's generating from her board service, put it in the deferred compensation plan and purchase stock there. So there's a lot of really cool planning going on, helping her create an investment in the company that she's joined the board of because she wants to show her support of everything that they're doing and right-sizing that investment and getting there over time in a very tax-efficient way and taking advantage of the opportunity to defer the rest of her income into a more traditional retirement plan, like a self-employed 401k plan, so that she can save that money, which she doesn't need to cover her current spending for the future in a tax-managed way. So... Wow, Sandy, it sounds exciting and it sounds complicated. Like I appreciate you underscoring some of the decisions she'll be making and also great opportunities, but complicated. There is some complication. I think of it as fun. Of course you do. Lots of new puzzles (laughs) to solve. So, Well, what a perfect introduction or opening comments because we get to welcome Julie Castro Abrams to the Money Tales podcast. Happy to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Julie, would you introduce yourself and in doing so provide a couple pivotal moments that happened in your life that really impacted and influenced who you are today? Well, I'll say at the highest level, I'm a social justice and racial justice activist for women. And so with that said, sort of, I started my life, I grew up in sort of a middle-class family, but there was also these, a lot of messages around money's the root of all evil grew up Catholic in the sort of stories of turning the tables over because people were in the money business. And I was like, I'm going to give away all my worldly goods and save the world. And so I do think that that influenced a big part of the early parts of my life. And I look back and I'm, I'm glad I did. But really, you know, it was like, I want to help other people and money's, you know, I grew up middle class. So I always felt like I was never poor. I would have been broke, but I was sort of, uh, in that camp. And so I spent a lot of my life, frankly, overextended financially. I probably had credit card debt, probably until my mid thirties. And it caused a lot of stress, even though I was balancing that out with all the good work, it was not healthy for me. And I look back and I'm saying to my kids, like, it is an unnecessary stress to carry around with you. If you manage your money better and if you don't get overextended, you can think beyond the next two weeks. You can actually, and you feel more free and stuff is meaningless. Having a house that's too expensive, having the fancy car, that gives you an adrenaline rush for five minutes. And then (laughs) it's a noose around your neck. I know it's like, yeah, it's easy for me to say now that I'm older and you know life's different, but- Having some cash in the bank changes everything. Not having a lot of bills makes life so much better. And so I started my life working on poverty alleviation and like a lot of people working in social impact, social justice work. You know, I was not too far away from a lot of that myself. I was probably helping people who had more than I did at certain points in time. And I started to really wrestle with money. There's a book called The Soul, S-O-U-L of money. And twist, Yeah. Yeah, it's just a tool. It's not my worth. 
And the more money you have, the people with the greatest wealth, you really realize it doesn't make you happier. It makes you happier to have enough to not have to worry about it, like to be able to have your rent paid or your mortgage paid or have enough food on the table. Like we all know Maslow's a hierarchy of needs, right? At a certain point, having enough that you have freedom to think and do the other things that are important in life is is really important. And now today, I'm really in the business of helping women think about their money and say, investing along with their values. We actually did a research study last year, uh, looking at the investing behavior of women, investing along with your values, doing things with other women and having an impact. Those are really important things for us. And how do we really help women also think about the power play of money? I'll give you an example. A woman, friend of mine, general counsel at one Google's healthcare company, and she was seen as a, that's a lawyer. A general counsel is the top lawyer in a company. She's making a lot of money, but she wanted to get on corporate boards, for example. And people were seeing her as the lawyer. They weren't seeing her as the general manager that would go on a corporate board. And she invested in a venture fund that I started with a bunch of great women. And she was like, I told people, you know, I'm a VC, I'm investing in venture. And all of a sudden people were like, oh, will you go on my corporate board? And it wasn't a lot of money she invested. So there's a lot of moments and ways where if you leverage your money well, it gives you more power and influence to be able to do more things that are important in your life. And so right now I'm a student of human behavior and what gets us to the places that we want to be. What are those tweaks you can make? And money is a critical part of that. Julie, there's so much to talk about in your introduction. And thank you for that. We do love to kind of go back in time and drill in a little bit to understand the foundational part of your life and how you learned about money through your parents. You talked a little bit about it. But when did money start having meaning to you? My father was an engineer. They were middle-class, comfortable family, right? But it wasn't always super easy. They had five kids and their mortgages were at 20% at a certain point. And I remember like in the 70s, I remember stress, but not extraordinary. I remember my mom got an inheritance from her dad, not huge, but enough. And she couldn't access her own money without my dad's signature. And then she started a company and she was going to buy a business and she couldn't get it without my dad signing on the bottom line. She's like, it's my money. And in 1988, we actually passed a law in the United States saying women could take out commercial loans without their husband's signatures or another man. Like, does that make any sense in our life? long ago. Yeah. It's shocking. Yeah. And that was actually, there was a package of legislation that was considered game-changing at that moment in time. So it's so interesting to have been alive. I sound like I'm a hundred years old, but like, (laughs) you know, I was there in these pivotal moments. I also remember my mom's contemporaries, my mom and dad stayed together until my father passed away. But my mom's colleagues, friends, like people in my friend group, their husband's left them for the 25-year-old secretary is the kind of the story. And that's what really happened back then. And this was before they would split assets 50-50. And I will never forget all these women being destitute. And the men didn't have to give them any money. And they didn't even help them raise their own kids sometimes. And so I was impressed. It was, I think I was in high school and going to college at that time. I was like, that will never be me. I will never be at that kind of risk. And so I actually made a life choice of who I was going to marry because back then I got, I met my husband in 1989. I went to Northwestern University of Chicago. I hung out with these guys who are now running the world. 
And I was like, I will never be a trophy wife. I'm not capable of it. It's impossible. And I thought like, if I want to have a family, I'm going to have to step back in my career. So I didn't make the choice not to have a family. I decided to have a family and have a career and find a life partner that one had enough ego strength and doesn't even compete with me. I'm the primary breadwinner. And that was all by design. It was part of protecting myself because I was, I grew up in that environment. And I also was part of that generation that benefited from Title IX and all these feminist actions that happened in the 70s and 80s that made it so women, you kind of felt like everything's possible, but it really wasn't. But you felt like I'm going to use this power of the women and go to sports and equal access to craft the life that I want. So I feel like it was a magic moment in the world, maybe for many of us. Julie, I like what you're saying. You're really uh, bringing home the impact that the experiences we have growing up has on how we form our ideas and our relationships with money and, and those money scripts that can be very powerful. And I'm curious, was it observing things that your parents' friends were going through part of the reason why you decided to focus your life on social and racial justice for women? No, I don't think so. I no longer practice any religion. I grew up Catholic though, and I actually believed it. I have committed my entire life to making the world a better place. I literally do that. In my earlier days, I thought that was combined with giving away all my wealth or not making money. Now I'm like, I can make some money and give away money and still be a social justice activist and use the levers of women at the highest level of influence as a way to change structures. Do you guys know the story of Siddhartha? Yep. The story of the Buddha, right? First, it's like he came from a very, very wealthy family. He was a prince. And he was like, I'm going to just study religion all day, every day. And then he was like, well, this doesn't change anything. It wasn't making him happy. So then he goes out and he sees all the poor people. And he was like, oh, they look happy. Let me just give away everything and just meditate and be poor. Well, that's not great either. Cause that was after a while, you're like, well, I'm too hungry. And I actually really, it's very uncomfortable sitting under a tree. So then he realized it's the middle road. The middle road is the path to happiness. If you have enough, not too much and not too little, that's probably the path for happiness, at least from the Buddhist perspective. And I do think there's something to that. I see people, I have friends and see people with extraordinary wealth. And it's also super tough. If you made it yourself, it seems less tough. If you inherited it, married into it, I see so many issues with people's self-esteem, their sense of like, people only want to be my friend because of my money, but I didn't make it. So I, it's really messy. And so I have so much compassion for people at all levels of the spectrum. And now at my age, I can be a student of it and watch people's relationships. And I'm at a different place. I'm super peaceful and centered about what I have and what I've done. And I feel really, really blessed that I'm in this place. Julie, it's beautiful what you just talked about. Tell us about this time in your life. You're newly into your career. You've had great education, but you're not making enough money to cover your expenses. You're going into credit card debt. And the feeling you talked about, I felt it in my chest. I'm curious, where did you feel it at that time? Oh, yeah. I mean, there were times I was choking. And I run nonprofits. We're going through a financial crisis right now in 2023. I was running a nonprofit in 2000, well, all the time, you know, my whole career, but in, I'll just never forget, like in 2009, 
I was running a organization and I didn't pay myself for four months when there was the crisis and just got myself so extended and I made a bunch of mistakes. And the pain of that, I was like, oh, I took this too far. I sacrificed myself and my family and my health and literally had those passing moments of like, oh, I shouldn't even be here. I'm not doing anybody any good by being part of this. And that to get to that place is not good. Not good. So how did you get out of it? I'm curious. I just got rid of all my expenses and I just buckled down. I was like, I'm not going out to eat. I'm not like, I am just skinning it down. The other thing I did is I actually made some choices in my career to make more money. And I just needed to do it for my own peace of mind and emotional and financial health, obviously. And so I stepped out for a while of running a nonprofit and just started consulting. And I knew, I evaluated, I was like, I will not charge anyone less than $250 an hour as a consultant, no matter what, because I don't want to be their staff person. I want to make enough money that if, that I knew that all I needed is 10 hours a week of work and everything else was savings. I really worked through like, what do I need? And then how do I back into that? So I have the least amount of strain to get the minimum. And then everything else above that, I'm saving, 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 saving. I mean, I had my daughter was going to college in 2009. Her first year, her 529 plan, which I'd so diligently saved, was down to nothing. The markets had crashed. Literally, I couldn't use it because then I would barely even cover the first year, let alone the four years I had saved for. So when you do that, you think you're doing everything right. You think you're managing your finances well. And something like that happens. I made mistakes, but I also was super responsible in general. The fact that I'd saved enough for my kids' college, but you it put was, a five twenty nine plan together. Mm-hmm. It was gone. Like it, I don't know, it was just a fraction. I think it was twenty percent of what it had been. Same with my retirement. Everything was so depleted for that, and that was a moment in time I'll never forget. And I was living in this house that had a was part of a development, and I had a HOA, one of those monthly fees or whatever. I wasn't going to the board meetings, and they literally. In 2009, when everybody was in a crisis, they literally made a decision to go repave something. And all of us were supposed to put in $10,000 like that. I was like, I haven't been paid for three months. I was just joking to death. I liquidated some retirement funds because I was like, I got to get out of this. And then I paid the huge tax bill the next year. Like it took years to recover from that crisis. You didn't let it slow you down. And it sounds like you pivoted really hard out of it. Well, I'm an athlete. I don't know. I grew up as one of those Title IX girls, right? I was just like, all right. I mean, believe me, I had a couple moments where it's like... Well, tell us about that. I'm curious to know, were you talking a lot with your husband at this time? Were you talking with your friends? What was happening? You know what? I had so much shame. And the thing is, I look back with such compassion. It's like, I did everything right. I mean, yes, my mortgage, I probably should have paid less for that house, but it wasn't egregious stuff like that in hindsight, but how would you know that the housing crisis was going to happen and everything was going to be in the tank? How do you really plan for your assets to go down to 20% of what they were? But I had so much shame around it, you know, and I didn't talk to anybody. I barely talked to my husband about it. He's not financially savvy enough to really be able to add much to it. The good thing is he's a super responsible guy and he never spends any money. So 
he's never a problem for me. <laughs> he's like, he'll be fine with 10 bucks for the month. He'll, you know, he can figure <laughs> that out. Uh, rice and beans, baby. So it was just a moment where I was like, all right, I got to evaluate this. I got to reset. But now you're in a very different place. You described yourself as being in a place of peace. Yeah. Kind of helps that my kids are out of the house. I don't have any of those expenses. <laughs> was, was that it? Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of it. But you know what? I was like, I will never again have credit card debt. I will never again have a card note. I mean, for better, for worse. Maybe this is the wrong thing for other people. But I was at that age, I was in my you know, mid 40s. I was like, I am cleaning the decks. I am clearing the decks. And I am saving, saving, saving all the time because I cannot, that kind of stress will kill me. Literally, there are moments I thought the stress was going to give me a heart attack. Bad for you. (laughs) Coming from total self-awareness at the time. Yeah. And I'm just super frugal and responsible. I was never irresponsible, but I certainly felt like, oh yeah, let's upgrade to that or let's do this thing. I'm not doing that anymore, even though I have a lot more than I have ever had. But I'm also 55 years old and I have to make sure that not only am I safe and the market volatility tells us that safety is whatever, it's a fleeting thing, but diversifying. And I want to also like, if need be, be there for the nonprofits I love, be there for my team, be there for my kids. I'm not interested in having so much money that I bank it and nobody benefits from it for multi-generational stuff. That's not really my game because my kids are super successful and healthy and they don't need that from me. But I've taken a far more conservative approach in this stage of my life. Julie, you sound like you really are aligned with your values. And you talked earlier about how women typically invest along their values. How do you coach people, your clients, your friends to get to the root of their values? Because I I actually think it's a harder exercise than you can sort of throw out some ideas, but really being able to articulate. Well, Cammy, what it is today is not necessarily what it's going to be next year. Mm, I like it. And I think that's the thing. I think sometimes people think your values are so fixed and what you care about can evolve over time and how you want to interface with it is also interesting. So to me, my values are always around women and the environment. So when I look, for example, Patricia Lazarga just came out with a new ETF that is invested in his first one ever only in companies with women CEOs. Well, it's the truth is data shows when women are running companies, they perform better over time. She just started this couple months ago and it's outperforming already. Or Kristen Hull at Nia Capital, ESG, ESG, ESG. The data is very clear that ESG focus over the long-term results in better corporate returns and corporate sustainability. So those are examples of my values are aligned with returns. So you can do both. They are not mutually exclusive. So you don't have to give up returns to align with your values. Well, in those particular examples, you can make more money. There you go. I like (laughs) it. Yeah. I mean, Morgan Stanley did a research study and said, we we are leaving $4.4 trillion on the table that investors can earn, not just GDP, investors can earn if we just invested in companies founded by women, they're undercapitalized and we're all losing out. We're losing out as investors, we're not creating the jobs. Right now we had what, 200,000 women, uh, people have lost jobs since the beginning of the calendar year. Estimates are that it'll be 900,000 people will lose employment this year. That's on top of the results of 
this protracted pandemic where women and people of color were hurt the most. And the jobs that people are losing this year, it's primarily women and people of color. And so we have got to get jobs back. So if you care about getting jobs back, what are the levers to create the most jobs when you think about your investments and double down in those places? Like you could say, this is my strategy now, a year from now, I'm going to have some other strategies where my values might have shifted because of the economic macro climate. And also just based on living life and becoming more aware and being more in touch perhaps with what's important to you, life shifts. Well, and I have a couple of people I know that have kids with developmental disabilities. A lot of people have family members and kids, right? That's their focus. That's one of their values is I want to focus on solutions in that way. There are actually companies I've invested in a company that literally creates a hiring platform with a whole bunch of recommendations and stuff if you want to hire people with disabilities. There's a million different ways you can come up with values-aligned investing at any moment in time. Julie, tell us about starting How Women Lead. Well, kind of like a lot of things, like it started with great women sitting around together. So someone had written a book on the neuroscience of teams. I was consulting and making good money and when I ran that microfinance organization, all these great women who wanted to help women entrepreneurs that were involved with me, and I kind of missed engaging with them. So because this woman wrote this book, she was like, I'd love to get in front of some corporate women with my book so they can, I was like, fine, I'll, I'll host a lunch. Everybody will go Dutch. And then, you know, you can talk about your book. They want to buy it. That's fine. It was not a big deal. It was pretty easy. I wrote 70 friends, people I'd known, and 60 people came. And this was before there were felt like they were kind of before there were a lot of women's networks. Everybody was, you couldn't get a word in edgeways. You couldn't even hear the speaker. Everyone was so happy to be together. You know, when those great moments, when the drumbeat of everyone's energy is so intense and someone was like, you have the best connections. I've never been in a room full of women CEOs and women at my level. And it wasn't really intentional. I'm just, you know, the older you get, the more your friends are running the world, right? And so someone's like, I'm putting a LinkedIn group together and I'm calling it the Bay Area Women Leaders Network. Okay. And then everyone was like, do that again. Okay. And then it was like, all right, fine. I'll buy out a restaurant. I'll front the 2000 bucks. Let's see if people buy enough drinks that I don't have to, you know, and I'd lose some money on some of this stuff, but not much. And it really took off that way. And one of the things I started looking at is the research that says women between 45 and 65, it's called middlescence. It's a developmental life stage we don't know much about. We're happier if we're doing things with other women and if we're having an impact. So I was like, well... I don't want to just have parties with women. I mean, I like going to a party, but that's not enough for me. We got to have an impact. All right, let's address issues of women on corporate boards. Boom. Let's start to get into action. Let's support the legislative initiatives that my friend, Senator Hannah Jackson was putting together. And it just started to take off. And the thing is, then I started realizing like, we have more collective power than we've ever had. And I can make anything happen with this group of women. Literally, there's nothing that could stop all of us we can change anything in the world. We can create our own venture firms. We can change anything we need to change. It's just about will. And one of the critical things that I put in place with this, and of course, it wasn't originally intentional, but I grew up like you ladies, you women, in this environment that's bad for women. Our culture is bad for women. And so what I did is I was like, what's the opposite? Let's be that. We have a credo and literally you don't pay any money to belong. But what you have to do is you have to do the Girl Scouts pledge for my credo. One, be fierce advocates for each other. No mean girls. If you are one, you can't be part of this network, period, full stop. I literally ask you to step out. Two, 
make introductions and say yes. Most women tell me that the women hold their connections really close to their vest and men make more introductions for them than women do. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but you know, men are always like, they meet you and they're like, sure, I'll make an introduction to Joe. Often I was trained this way. It was, I'm naturally that way, but I felt like I was trained to like say, mm, well, are you good enough? And is this going to create risk for me? And all this fear-based silliness. Make introductions, say yes. We got to be power players. We got to make those connections happen. The third one is reinforce her voice when she speaks up and isn't being heard because literally women are told to be silent. Women are told that it's indelicate to take up any space. We all need to be her echo chamber and women will say things and nobody reacts. And then finally, and this is the hardest for most of us. And I did this in my twenties. I was the COO of something. And I was like, I'm the behind the scenes person. It's like, no, be unabashedly visible. Take up space, get your voice out there, sing from the rooftops, and we should all reinforce you. We should all make connections for you. And we should all fiercely advocate for you. We should all not just personally be the opposite. We should require people around us. Like the minute someone starts bashing Kamala Harris, Hillary Clinton, all these women who everybody loves to beat up, it's like, not in front of me. I don't want to hear it. This is unacceptable. I don't care what you think about this person. We cannot do that to other women anymore. And it's been like the favorite pastime to pull down other women and we got to stop it. And so to me, that's the credo. And I want everybody to take their own version of that. It's like buck the culture that's bad for us. We got to be better and we can be, but we were all trained poorly to do this stuff. Julie, how often does money come up in how women lead conversations? Constantly, yes. We started a venture firm as one example, but people literally will say to me like, and I get this, I've had this experience myself, like I need a financial advisor, but they're disrespectful to me. I don't feel like they understand me. If you're a woman of color, an immigrant, for example, and you talk to a white guy about your money management, they have completely different perspectives. I'm married to an immigrant. We have to have a budget line item, send money to his family every month. There's always a crisis. He's got a lot of siblings. There's always somebody. And it's like, how could we not send 250 bucks, 500 bucks to solve a problem? Someone's got a cancer scare and can't go to the doctor. I can't not send them money. So that's got to be part of my budgeting. So I think one of the things people are desperate for is information, access, and of course, to financial advisors and like these new ETFs and stuff. But the other thing is, how do you negotiate? And I'll just remind everyone, we have this myth that women don't ask and that's why they're not making more money. It is baloney. That is not the case. What we really know is when women ask, unless they ask in this super couched way, women actually are seen negatively for asking for a raise or asking for the money that they're worth. My daughter started working at Uber. I'm just going to say it. Travis Kalanick was fired. They brought in the attorney general. They did an audit of the women and people of color salaries. She'd been working for one year. She was right out of college. She was making 40% less than the boys hired at the exact same time. You're telling me my 23-year-old was supposed to negotiate and know how to negotiate for 40% more than you offered her? That doesn't make any sense. Think about the lifetime financial impact on her. So we all need to talk about money. We need to make it transparent. At Salesforce, who'd been such a leader in gender and racial pay equity, the first time they made an adjustment, they invested a huge amount of money to make it 
to right size it. Then they did it again two years later. You know what they realized? I was on the panel with the chief strategy officer of Salesforce. It takes two months and they're inequitable. That's not endemic to Salesforce. That's society. That's why women only apply for a job when they have 50% of the criteria. They won't apply if they only have 50% of the criteria. It's not because women are less confident and blame women, blame women. It's not true. It's literally, you're not seen for your potential. You're seen for what you already accomplished. So we're not dumb. (laughs) Yeah. So just like we have to talk more about money, we got to talk more about these issues. Well, it relates to money. It relates to money. Yeah, of course. It's right there. Yeah. What's your next money conversation going to be and who is it going to be with? Well, right now I'm working with a bunch of women-run venture firms to create a fund of funds. Women-run venture firms, as I mentioned earlier, kind of, they don't get enough financial investment. They don't get enough investments to actually be able to sustain well. I'm going to put a fund of funds together. You can give the money into that fund, and then I will do the work and take on the cost of investing in women-run venture firms. So that's an example of like play bigger, find solutions. And I'm not going to go to the gatekeepers to get that money. I'm going to the people in charge. I'm going to the people on the boards and I'm going to be assertive about it because I don't have anything to lose at this life stage. Good for you, Julie. I think you're reminding us often we don't have much to lose. So be proud, be strong. Thank you for that. Would you share with our listeners, what's the best way for them to find you or connect with you? I mean, on LinkedIn, Julie. Castro, C-A-S-T-R-O, Abrams with no H, A-B-R-A-M-S, but also How Women Lead. Check out How Women Lead. You can find the venture firm through How Women Lead. It's called How Women Invest. You can be part of a giving circle that we've got where we give grants to women and girls organizations. And you can learn and be in community with other women who are having an impact. And it is just gorgeous. Every day, the reinforcement I get of being with powerful, strong women who are values aligned, and are buying into the credo, there's nothing like it. Julie, this conversation has been captivating. Thank you for sharing so much and your energy and enthusiasm and what you're doing. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.